he's thinking to himself, everybody should pick it up and read it. And if they ha- if they're smart like me, they'll realize that it says exactly what I'm telling everybody that it says. Right. right so right. even with this, he's not talking about uh, even right. Luther doesn't believe in an absolute right of private judgment. He believes that he simply has the better interpretation and anybody with good sense is going to be like him and have the right interpretation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're an ass trying to play a harp with their own attempts to try and understand it their own way. I think you could use the hoof, you know, to pick the strings decently well. I mean, if you could fit the hoof in, if you could separate the strings on the harp by about six inches instead of having them any, yeah, yeah right anyway. along with it. <laughs> Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, where we make the shows that make the whole world think. We're glad that you're along here. Uh, <laughs> it was a production of the Coming Home Network. If you don't know anything about the Coming Home Network, come visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, we have tons of free resources for people who are interested in the Catholic Church uh, at any level. And we also have an online community uh, that you could plug into and meet others who are like you if you want to connect with them and... Um, maybe share experiences. That's community.chnetwork.org. You can also give to make all of this possible. Uh, chnetwork.org. Click on the Compass program. So, Ken Hensley, we've been in the middle of Luther's story and using a bit of his story as a launch pad back into our own story. So if you could contextualize where we are in that particular journey. Yeah, I want to do that by going back to the beginning just to uh, to start go to the beginning to begin because we kind of raked luther over the coals a bit in our previous episode and so i do want to emphasize this i want to emphasize the fact that the catholic church uh, never insisted that everything martin luther had to say about the need for reform and a spiritual reform in the church or moral reform in the church was false the church has never insisted on that what the church has insisted on and what I'm wanting to insist on in this series that we're doing is simply that the two major fundamental doctrinal uh, innovations that came out of the Reformation and that came ultimately from Luther were wrong and were a, a terrible mistake. And what I'm referring to here are you know, um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the material principle of the Reformation, as it were, the article, Martin Luther said, upon which the church stands or falls, and the doctrine of sola scriptura, the idea that scripture will function as the Christian's sole binding rule of faith and practice. So, in other words, even though we have said some things about Martin Luther as a person, you know, his, his upbringing, his, his own spiritual and even psychological, I think, struggles, and even though we said some things last week about the, um, the things that other reformers said about him in terms of his more, moral life, I want to make that clear— I wasn't saying it. I was reading Heinrich Bullinger saying it, or we were reading, you know, uh, Philip Melanchthon saying it. It was, it was. We were talking about some things that Luther's contemporaries had to say about his own moral life. And, and so I, I want to just clear the I'm air not on that out too. Yeah, right. Go ahead. To say that that some of the baggage that I have from being a Wesleyan who was uh, very much against 
uh, for instance, Luther's perspective on free will, because the Wesleyan Arminian position on uh, free mm-hmm. will is extremely uh, robust. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, there's an, a very, very strong emphasis on the need to cooperate with grace. And so that's that's stuff that uh, yeah. I'm, I'm falling back into old arguments I used to have as a Wesleyan Arminian with Calvinists, <laughs> you know, so I apologize yeah. for any of that. That was not the Catholic in me necessarily talking, although I do have plenty of Wesleyanism still in me. Yeah. Yes, and 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 I just add one more thing to that, and that is, look, my life is filled with with uh, issues. So my goal in this is not to pound on a man in his time doing what he thought needed to be done. I want to focus very much on the ideas. Again, sola fide, justification by faith alone, and sola scriptura. And over the past couple of weeks, you and I focused on the first, that if we looked at Luther's doctrine of justification, how Luther came to hold this doctrine, and what it was that he came to hold, that is, you know, defining it, explaining it. And last week, we looked in particular, Matt, at the moral unraveling that Luther himself admitted this doctrine of justification by faith alone led to at the time of the Reformation. And so I want to begin just recapping by quoting from Martin Luther himself. Unfortunately, it is our daily experience that now under the gospel, and he means under my gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in the imputed, legally imputed righteousness of Christ, unfortunately is our daily experience that now under the gospel, the people entertain greater and bitterer hatred and envy and are worse with their avarice and money grabbing than before under the papacy. Everybody thinks that Christian liberty and licentiousness licentiousness of the flesh are one and the same thing, as if now everybody was allowed to do what he wants. This state of morals brings general discredit on the gospel and its preachers, as the people say, if this gospel is true, the person professing it would be more pious. So, And that's a, again, that's a debate, are, by the way, um, that... You know, we did talk about uh, a little bit in the Armenian world um, the uh, the com- mm-hmm. you know the comparison between liberty and license. Right, you're free under the law. You're not bound by a set of rules. That doesn't mean that you can go do whatever you want. And at the same time, the way that Luther had talked about um, banishing the law of Moses, don't even think about this stuff from the law of Moses. Uh, unfortunately, opened the door, as you mentioned, to being able to say. Well, let's just not worry about yeah, any of it. Yeah. Uh, people use that as an excuse, even if that's not where Luther wanted everybody to go. That's where people sometimes did go. Yeah, even though Luther didn't want people to go there, when you say things like chase that stuttering and stammering Moses back to the Jews where he belongs and things like that, you know, it's going to open the door, okay? So we talked about that unraveling last week, Matt. And this week, I want to turn our attention to the from the material principle of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, to the formal principle, sola scriptura. And what we're going to see, here's a little parallelism for you. What we're going to see is that Luther's insistence that scripture should be taken as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian and for the church. This teaching led to an unraveling in the realm of truth, even more, one could argue, even more devastating than the unraveling that the doctrine of justification by faith alone brought about in the realm of morals. And that's what we're going to look at today, the second unraveling, if you will. And so let's just start with a discussion of how sola scriptura came to be. Um, 
When Luther came to his conviction about justification, he began to teach his conviction in the university classroom where he was professor at the University of Wittenberg, from the pulpit of the uh, Castle Church in Wittenberg, and in writing, he began to write pamphlets and books, preaching, teaching his new view of the question of salvation, justification, how we are made right in the sight of God. And as he taught this, and as he wrote, he increasingly, obviously, came into conflict with the church because his views did not match the church's view. In 1517, Luther posts his 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. In 1518, Luther meets with Cardinal Cajetan for three days of discussion. Now, I want to say something about the Cardinal here quickly because he's often mockable. I mean, he's often mocked in certain Protestant literature. Cardinal Cajetan was the vicar general of the Dominican order at the time. He had written an extensive commentary on St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa. This guy was no theological slouch is the point that I want to make, okay? This guy was a, um, a, a stalwart theologian and philosopher, and he met with Martin Luther for three days to discuss Luther's views. Now, Cajetan wrote to um, Frederick the Wise, the, arch, um, the, uh, the elector of Saxony, and he told him at the time, he, he basically said that his intention in meeting with Luther was, was to treat Luther as a father and not as a judge. His hope was that he could convince this young theologian and man, a madman, he, he was beginning to view him, uh, to convince him that he was wrong. And uh, when he left the meetings, though, uh, Cajetan's view was basically, hey, this guy is totally intransigent, intransigent. This guy, sadly, can only be considered to be a heretic. Now, Luther, on his part, he wrote to his good friend Melanchthon, and this gives you a window into Luther's attitude. Here he meets with the vicar general of the Dominicans, and the Dominicans are not like your, hey, let's just you know think about ideas. These are smart guys. These are stalwart students. He leaves his discussions with Cajetan, and he writes to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and he says, uh, you know, this Cajetan guy, he says, he was no more fit to debate with me than an ass is to play the harp. Are we using that one? By the way, I'm going I'm to use say? that one. Uh, when next time yeah. somebody, uh, you know, I think is yeah. making a bad argument. Just be like, people have no talked fit. about Luther's, no more people have talked about Luther's arrogance. Okay, I won't talk about Luther's arrogance. I'll just say, you know, take this for what it is. He leaves Cajetan saying, this man was no more fit to debate with me than an ass is, a donkey to play a harp. Okay, there's more then, because... He goes on from there to have his famous debate with John Eck in the beautiful city of Leipzig. Eventually, in 1521, Luther is brought before the ecclesiastical authorities as things heated up at the Diet of Worms. Now, okay, let's set the framework and understand what's going on here. When Luther stood before this tribunal, the issue at hand, or the, the issue on one level, was the issue of the gospel. That is Luther's teachings about justification, comparing that with the church's teaching on justification. But on a more foundational level, the issue was that of authority. Because the church said to Luther, in essence, your teaching is wrong. And Luther said to the church, in essence, no, you're wrong. The church said, no, your teaching is wrong. Luther said, no, your teaching is wrong. And the church said, listen, Martin, what you are teaching contradicts the ancient faith 
of the Catholic Church, the authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church. So with this, Luther faced a watershed, an epistemological watershed regarding the issue of truth and the issues of authority. What did Luther believe about who has authority to speak for God? That's ultimately the question. Does anyone on earth have authority to speak for God? Um, another way of putting it, who decides whether Luther's doctrine of justification that he believed he found in St. Paul is true and biblical or not? Is there anyone to decide? See, if the issue of authority is being raised, who decides? And before we come to Luther's answer, I just want to back up a step and make the point that at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church's visible unity through all those centuries had always been rooted in authority. The authority of the church, that is the authority of the leadership, the ordained leadership, the bishops of the church globally in union with the Bishop of Rome, led by the Holy Spirit to preserve and to pass down without error the teaching of the apostles. This was the foundation of the church's ability to exist as one church, to, to exist as Christendom. It was always the Catholic's approach, in other words, to think of sacred scripture, I love this analogy, to think of sacred scripture as the pure light of God's revelation, to think of sacred tradition, that is the faith of the early church, the doctrine and teaching of the church as was preserved, to view sacred tradition as the lens, lens through which the pure light of God's revelation is brought into focus and more clearly understood, and then to think of the magisterium of the church as the eye that was ordained by God to look through the lens of sacred tradition at the pure light of sacred scripture and decide to pronounce authoritatively on what's being taught. This was always the position of the church, that through scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, the Holy Spirit assists the church to preserve and to hand down the apostolic teaching. You know, so that one person, you might say something, as a Wesley and John Wesley might say something, someone else, Ken Hensley might say something, theological schools might evolve and they might debate with one another. The idea was though that once the church in a formal way had examined the light of sacred scripture through the lens of sacred tradition and come to a formal definition regarding a matter of faith or morals, that the Holy Spirit leads the church so that Christians everywhere can, can, um, grab onto that and embrace it as being true, just like the Christians did after the first council of Jerusalem recorded in If I can pause you right 15. there, because sure. now that I understand that, like I find that to be like a really consoling and relieving thing. Um, before I understood it and how it worked, I thought, well, that sounds just like a fist coming down, right? <laughs> because mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds as though, oh, what are these old people like, no, I mean, what if the spirit moves in a fresh and new way, right? Uh, now, having been in some, I would say, pretty chaotic circumstances where I just wish there was somebody to come in and settle something, yeah, and knowing that there was nobody to settle anything, it was just the strongest personality in the room that was going to settle it, and that strongest personality might have just a strong personality and not a good yeah. case. Like now it's just, now I see everything you just said is like a relieving and consoling thing to me, mostly because I've just seen enough, I think, well-meaning people 
go down yeah. weird and bad and messed up and conflicted roads because there was nobody to say the church says this. Um, I just want to put yeah, that out when, there. When you when you talk about it being consoling, I think of Acts chapter fifteen where you have this the first major theological dispute in the early church. You know, Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And they meet and they decide and they send out, it's referred to as a letter, but you may as well call it a decree because they send out this letter in which they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And the decision is given and we read in Acts 15, I don't remember, verse 38, I think, that the Christians received it with joy. You know, you speak of being consoled. The church speaks, you know, right? The church speaks. Yeah. Uh, the, the one other thing I'll add mm -hmm. to this is that... Um, sure. I, I would encourage people to go and see how this kind of has played out in a particular journey. And, and hopefully this sets a little bit of the backdrop of what you're about to say about how this conflict looked when it really kind of blew up with, with Luther. Um, but Melissa Slagle has a... Um, she's been in a couple of our... Uh, pieces of outreach and uh, she's a wonderful person former baptist and she was trying to settle a dispute about like the trinity and the meaning of baptism with someone who was a united pentecostal and she thought to herself well how do i know these people are praying and they seem like people who love christ mm -hmm. how do i know their take on the trinity is wrong and mine is right in the early church paul would come in when there was a dispute and say hey this is how it is. She's like, where is my Paul? <laughs> Where's my Paul now? Yeah, yeah. And so it is really this, this issue of, you know, somebody at the end of the day has got to say, somebody's mm -hmm. got to be Paul who's speaking on behalf of the church or speaking with the authority of the church. And, and so... Yeah, where's my Paul? Yeah, where's my council of Jerusalem? Where's my... Where are the apostles and elders? Yeah. Where are the apostles and elders meeting in council who can come out and tell me we've hashed it through? This is the answer. Instead you don't of have to think hey, about guess it all what? from scratch. Yeah. Okay. So 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 Luther is standing in opposition to the teaching of the church at this point on a foundational issue: the issue of salvation. How are sinners made just in the in the, in the sight of God? So, and the question is, again, I'm saying on the surface level, it's not, I don't want to say surface. On one level, it's the doctrine of justification, but on a deeper um, presuppositional level, foundational level, it's, a, it's the issue of authority. Does the church have authority when having examined the light of sacred scripture through the lens of sacred tradition, its ordained leadership, the magisterium, pronounces on it in a formal way? This is the doctrine of the church. This is what we hold. Does that authority exist? Now, Luther really only had two options as he stands before the Diet of Worms then, really, as a Christian. On the one hand, he could bow to the authority of the church, and he could abandon his position. Or he could at least say, you know what? I'm just me. I'm standing against the weight of the church's teaching um, I will assume that I must be reading Paul wrong. There must be something wrong. Um, I don't. I don't understand where I'm wrong now. You haven't convinced me that I'm wrong yet. But you know what? I won't write these books. <laughs> you know, I won't send out this doctrine. You know, as being true. Um, I'll hold back. Okay. He could have done something like that. The other option, because he really only has two. The other option is to reject the authority of the church and to just take his stand on what he believes to be the teaching of the Bible. And we all know now, I mean, this is 500 years ago, what Luther chose to do. 
I consider myself convicted by the Holy Scripture, he said, which is my basis. The Scripture is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I'm just, I'm paraphrasing a bit of the, or linking together some of the phrases. Here I stand, I can do no other. Okay, that's what Luther did. Luther basically said, okay, if you're forcing a choice, I reject the authority of the church and I stand upon the only authority that I really see for me, and that is the Bible. And with this, Sola Scriptura was born. This is the birth of Sola Scriptura. Scripture is the Christian's sole binding rule of faith and practice. I wonder what would have happened if, uh, if in that statement, you know, one of the cardinals or, or one of the ambassadors of the church would have stood up and say, you know what, we consider ourselves convicted by the Holy Scripture, and our consciences are captive to the Word of God, and we cannot and will not let you go on this, Martin, <laughs> because it would mean yeah. acting against our own consciences, which is neither safe nor sound. God help us. Like, what if that had been the way that someone had positioned the answer? Because that, that's essentially... You've got two people saying our consciences are captive to the word of God, and Luther's saying my conscience is captive to the word of God in a way that is superior to yours, even though it's completely divorced <laughs> from the entirety of church history. You know what I'm saying? See how difficult it, it even is to formulate it, to say it. You, you said it. My, cap, my conscience is captive in a way that is somehow like a little better than my conscience all of your like consciences. More, it's like 5% more captive. Uh than all of yours and and all of yours throughout Christendom, you know, going back for centuries. Okay, so, but okay, okay, here's the pay dirt was, was hit though. I mean, the, the foundation was struck at this point, and that is okay, you're forcing me to answer the question of authority. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answer. For me, it's the Bible. Script, scripture is authoritative, and the rest, no. Okay, now think with me because uh, I'm already kind of moving into it. But Matt, when you think of practical implications, what is the primary practical implication of saying the scripture is going to function as the only binding rule of faith and practice in your life? What's well, the, I mean, the primary, the primary implication pr is that you have just erased any kind of authoritative seat of interpretation for it other than the individual conscience yes that means that luther's luther leaves the door open for anybody in his class to say dr luther dr luther my conscience is captive to yeah. the word of god and i've got this spin on it of course that's, yeah. I, that's actually you know, what happens this is referred to historically as the right of private judgment or the right of private interpretation um but yeah th th that's exactly it if you rub out all binding authority on earth outside the Bible, then what are you left with except, well, the Bible. And since the Bible doesn't jump up and say to you, I'm the Bible and this is what I'm teaching, <laughs> you know. Well, ultimately, you, you think you're, you're left, left with, with the Bible, but in fact, you're left with your own yeah. moods and preferences yeah. and biases. And that's the ultimate authority, um, unfortunately. Now, before we unwind this a bit further and see where it led and see where where it leads, I want to comment uh, uh, parenthetically on something that many Catholics don't know, in fact, that many Protestants don't know, and it's this. Catholics also believe 
in a right of private judgment. Um, it, it's just that Catholics hold this right to be a limited right. That is, it's a right that you and I can are free to practice within the limits of what the church has already formally defined to be true. Okay. Well, you know, for example, but we could pick anything, you know, I can study if I like, I could study the mystery of our Lord's incarnation in the gospels. And I could try to approach it in uh, more deeply than any theologian in the history of the world has. Um, I could come up with new insights possibly. I could uh, find out things no one's ever seen before and even thought before. And I could write a book and, uh, Theoretically, this is not going to happen, in which people would say, wow, no one has ever seen this before, but it's true. But the thing is, so, so I can study. I have a right of private judgment. But if in my study, I come to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't fully God, that he was just a very high created being upon whom the Spirit came, or that Jesus was two persons with one nature, or something, if, if, if I come to that those kinds of conclusions, I can, as a Catholic, I can know that I'm wrong. I can know that I'm the one who has gone off the rails. I can know that I have made an error somewhere. Okay? Uh, I, I, I love the illustration that Peter Kraft gave on this, Matt. Um, he says, we Catholics are like, when it comes to this issue of the right of private judgment, we're like kids in a playground. Um, we can jump on the swing set. We can go down the slide. You and I could even sit in the sandbox and we could throw theological sand and scriptural sand in, into one another's eyes. We can debate. We can do all these things. But as Catholics, there's a fence around the playground so that we have a limited right, keeping us safe so that we don't walk out into the street and we're just bowled over by every passing theological fad. Protestantism doesn't really have that. There's no real fence, ultimately. I see you flipping through your book. Uh, oh, I was just trying to think about how, how often this is also implied in like a private devotional sense as well, where let's say you're mm -hmm. reading a passage from Scripture. Look, so I've, I've just pulled up Psalm uh, 66, verse 18, uh, where it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Like in thinking, mm -hmm. well, maybe I could think about a time right now where I have been so holding on to my anger about this specific thing and has so much unforgiveness in my life towards mm -hmm. this specific person. And maybe that's why I'm having such a struggle in prayer. Maybe this right, maybe this, what God's telling me right now in this verse is I need to go and reconcile with my brother um, and show him mercy so that I can open this mm -hmm. up. That's a private something that would apply specifically and directly to me, right? It's not something yeah, that is. I mean, it's it's a very subjective way of reading a scripture by thinking about my own specific life and what it might be saying. Yeah. It's not the same as saying, guys, I think that what, how you're saved is different than we've always been taught, <laughs> right? It's a very different right. kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, we're talking about limited right versus an unlimited right. And re really, when you think of it, Matt, what Luther did was he, he, he took this limited right that we all have of private judgment and private interpretation and he just like pushed it out and turned it into essentially an absolute right. Because, because when Luther says, unless I am convinced, I stand upon Scripture, another way of saying that is that Luther was basically saying, in the end, I don't really care what the church has said. I don't really care what popes have said. I don't care what you tell me has been the constant you know, tradition of the church with, re with respect to this doctrine. I don't care. Unless I am convinced by evident reason, by scripture, you know, you have to convince me. 
You have to convince me. Yeah. He, he took what was a limited right and he made it an absolute right for Christians. Although, and we've, we've spoken about this before, I don't think he meant it to be an absolute right in the way that it ended up manifesting mm-hmm. as an absolute right. Uh, again, it's clear from what Luther was saying, uh, even when he said, you know, I'm convicted by Scripture that this is what it's going to be and everybody should be able to read it for themselves, he doesn't think to himself and come <laughs> to their own conclusions. He's thinking to himself, everybody should pick it up and read it, and if, they ha- if they're smart like me, they'll realize that it says exactly what I'm telling everybody that it says, right? right so right. even with this, he's not talking about, uh, right. even Luther doesn't believe in an absolute right of private judgment. He believes that he simply has the better interpretation, and anybody with good sense is going to be like him and have the right interpretation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're an ass trying to play a harp with their own attempts to try and understand it their own way. I think you could use the hoof, you know, to pick the strings decently well. I mean, if you could fit the hoof in, if you could separate the strings on the harp by about six inches instead of having them in it. Yeah, anyway. along with it. No, Here's a little no, song I, take I the, Yeah, I take the point that you're making. What he did, though, that is the logic of what he did leads to an absolute or in, entails an absolute right of private judgment, ultimately. Although he's not really thinking that and he's not really wanting that. It's, it, it's as you say, I agree. But... Basically, when he says, unless I am convinced, he is saying, I don't care about these other so-called authorities. They don't count for me. I have to be convinced I'm standing on Scripture alone. And when you think of it, in the absence of the kind of church that Catholics believe in, and that is a church with the Spirit-given ability to pronounce authoritatively on matters of doctrine and and morals, um, what really is left? Again, if you clear the landscape of other binding authorities and you leave it with just the Bible laying there, just the Bible laying there in the middle of the desert, what is left but I have the right. And this is what happened, beginning with Luther, but then spreading more more broadly. Individual Christians within Protestantism, that is, came to conceive of themselves as possessing the right to decide for themselves what the true teachings of the faith were without being bound ultimately uh, by any other authority on earth. I mean, you could feel yourself bound by what your dad teaches you or your mom or Uncle Jim or, or your grandpa or what the pastor is saying or what other theologians are saying, but you wouldn't be bound ultimately by any of that. I, I still love how John Calvin put it because it kind of encapsulates the whole thing. John Calvin said it like this. He said, we hold, speaking of himself, we hold that the word of God alone lies beyond the sphere of our judgment. Fathers and councils are of authority only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. And I want to focus on that first line. We hold that the word of God alone lies beyond the sphere of our judgment. He's saying, it's only the Bible that lies beyond the sphere of my judgment. Everything else lies within the sphere of my judgment. I may decide over the fathers, I may decide over the councils, over the popes, over all of Catholic tradition. There's only one thing that lies beyond the sphere of my judgment, and that's the Bible. And of course, as you and I have discussed this many, many times, who is going to determine for John Calvin what the rule of the word is when he says, only the rule of the word stands above these things? Who's going to decide yeah, what the rule of the word is? Who's going to settle a dispute when someone stands up to John Calvin and says, the same exact thing to him. 
that says the word of God alone is belong beyond the sphere of my judgment, and I think that you're wrong about yeah X X right. But again, it comes back to the idea too that very often when people say that they believe in the Bible as the sole infallible rule mm-hmm. of faith, the sole and sufficient rule of faith, what they're really saying is my interpret my my interpretation of the Bible. And they don't realize they're saying that. I know I didn't realize I was saying that when I said it. But, uh, and I think I mentioned this in in part of my story, um, sort of when I realized what I was saying, I was Mm -hmm. saying, the church is right to the extent that she agrees with me. (laughs) Right? That's essentially what what Calvin's saying here. But again, like Luther, you're not thinking by that. You're not thinking what is really coming through and coming across and logically entailed in the words you're using, you're not really thinking that. You're just you're passionate kind of thinking, about what you believe, right? You're just passionate well, about what yeah, you believe. And you also think, well, the Bible is perspicuous. It's clear. And therefore, if uh, all I'm doing is just reading it. That's all I'm doing. I'm just reading the Bible, you know. Uh, so this, this is how Cal, Cal, Calvin puts it. You know, only the word of God lies beyond the sphere of our judgment. Luther put it even more succinct, succinctly. Here's a quote. In these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope, and Church. And think about that, because we we are we Catholics are often accused of exaggerating what sola scriptura implies or entails. Okay, you know, oh, you're you guys just make it sound like there's no authority. You just make it sound like it's just up to every person. So I just want you to hear that again. This is Luther in these matters of faith. To be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope and church. But as you said a moment ago, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to uh, to deal with the the ramifications and the flack and the fallout from, from saying that, because this is where the tragedy begins to unfold, Matt, historically and in Luther's own life. Because the moment that Luther began preaching sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, immediately there was a veritable explosion of theological ideas and an explosion of divisions within the Protestant movements. <clears throat> this is just an historical fact. This is not this is not something I'm just making up, and it's a it, it's a historical reality that could have been predicted. You know, as I'm saying, all you have to do is think through the logic of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, and you could predict it. In fact, Luther did predict it. Luther himself, foreseeing what would come of his own teaching and his own example, Luther wrote to Philip Melanchthon, and he said this. There will be the greatest confusion. Nobody will allow himself to be led by another man's doctrine or authority. Everybody will be his own rabbi. Hence the greatest scandals. And I, I don't think anybody could have said it better. Everybody will be his own rabbi. What else could happen if you say that it's the Bible alone and everybody has the right of private judgment? Everybody will be his own rabbi. As the Protestant churches, Matt, began to splinter and divide and fragment, Luther famously complained, there are as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. I mean, see, Luther's okay with exaggeration too. I'm sure that's an exaggeration at the time, but that's what he says. There are as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. That's how it seemed to him. This fellow will have nothing to do with baptism. Another denies the sacrament, that is the Eucharist. A third believes that there is another world between this and the last day. Some teach that Christ is not God. 
Apparently some were teaching that based on the Bible alone. Some say this, some say that, there is no rustic so rude but that if he dreams or fancies anything, it must be the whisper of the Holy Spirit. He himself must be a prophet. And again, it comes back to that whole thing about, you know, God's speaking to me, the rest of y'all are crazy. It's like with any dispute, you always think that that it's the other guy who's being the Pharisee, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, again, when Luther says all these things about like the right of private interpretation and and the doors he's opening, he's assuming that people mm-hmm. are going to say, oh, now that I've read it for myself and come to my own conclusions, Luther, I see you're right about this. And instead, <laughs> right, right. That's get, what he's assuming. this other stuff. Yeah, and, and, and that's why uh, when Luther watched some of his own disciples, some of his own students, some of those that he had taught, when he watched them begin to become critical of his teaching and depart from his teaching, um, this is something that blew him away. Here's another interesting quote from Martin Luther. How many doctors have I made through preaching and writing? Now they say, be off with you. Go off with you. Go to the devil. Thus it must be. When they preach, they laugh. Or when we preach, they laugh. When we get angry and threaten them, they mock us, snap their fingers at us, and laugh in their sleeves. That's a very colorful way of putting it. These, these are people he had discipled. These were his students at the university or others, and now they say, be off with you. Go to the devil with you. You know. Now when he preaches justification by faith alone, they start laughing, and they start you know, snickering into their sleeves. One more quote on this. Luther even admitted that the chaos was directly related. You know what? But before I even finish that sentence, this is what we saw last week, where we saw Luther admitting that there was a moral unraveling that that um that resulted from this preaching of the gospel, that is of justification by faith alone. Well, Luther admitted the same about the chaos that came from uh, Sola Scriptura. He admitted that it was directly related to the rejection of the Catholic Church's authority. This is what he said. Since the downfall of popery and the cessation of excommunications and spiritual penalties, the people have learned to despise the Word of God. They no longer care for churches. They have ceased to fear and honor God. After throwing off the yoke of the Pope, everyone wishes to live as he pleases. And, you know, all I can think at this point is that none of this should really surprise us. I mean, this begins to seem to me like two plus two equals, how are you going to fill in the blank? You know, none of this should be surprising because the logic just seems inescapable. You ridicule and you reject the concept of an authoritative church or the, the idea that the, that the binding decisions of councils and bishops throughout the history of the church, that it would be binding, you reject that. You stand upon Scripture alone, and you say Scripture is the only binding authority in the life of the Christian. Then how, how would you be surprised? Why would you be surprised when you look around and individualism abounds, subjectivism abounds, um, when there are as many uh, views, uh, as many views as there are heads, to use Luther's phrase. Yeah, and, and and again, so this is as we talked about how the unraveling of sola fide 
of faith alone, justification by faith alone, leads to a moral relativism, the unraveling of sola scriptura, and it's actually rather kind of heartbreaking in a way, uh, honestly, um, leads to uh, theological relativism, uh, relativism in the area of truth. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how many people mm-hmm. I know, I've known, you know, for a long, long time and ran around in evangelical circles with who have been in one church and another church and another church. And instead of saying, it, they got to a point of exhaustion to where the, instead of saying, I wonder which one of these has the truth, uh, instead mm-hmm. have thrown up their hands and said, you know what, maybe none of this is true, right? Um, there yeah. becomes an maybe exhaustion truth in the marketplace of ideas. Maybe um, truth isn't even important. Maybe right. forget it, kind of. Maybe right. all that matters is, uh, in a lot of these cases, is political power, uh, <laughs> right? Maybe all, all that matters is, mm-hmm. is just getting as much as you can in the time that we've got, right? Um, let's fight about politics now. I mean, it's it's a... You know, yeah, you end up, you, you either end up kind of feeling like nobody knows or, I mean, maybe it's not important that we even know. Maybe the truth isn't important at all. Maybe it's just me and Jesus, you know, if I love him and he loves me, maybe that's all the church is. Maybe there's nothing more to it. it, it it's all of these kinds of, but basically it's a relativizing in, that occurs in the realm of morals and relativizing in the realm of truth. Before I begin to wrap this up, I just want to comment on one passage that was really important to me and that I thought so much about. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about how Christ has given pastors and teachers to the church as gifts. And he says, the Lord gave pastors and teachers to the church in order to build the church up in unity so that the children of God would no longer be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine. Okay, just just think about that image. This is why our Lord gives pastors and teachers to the church so that it will be built up in unity and the children of God will not be blown about by every theological concept, every charismatic pastor out there, every new idea, every new book, every new theological trend, fad, anything like that. And it's when the question came to me, Matt, that I, I feel like it was like a bulldozer coming through my worldview. When this question came to me, how can pastors and teachers accomplish this? How can they accomplish this goal of building up the church in unity if each one of them is his own rabbi? If each pastor, if each teacher is his own rabbi, how can their teaching possibly build the church up in unity? I mean, they could build their congregation up around their theology, and then the guy down the road is building up his congregation around his theology. But how could pastors and teachers writ large, or speaking globally, how could they function to build the church up in unity so that the children of God are not being blasted around by every wind and wave of doctrine? when each one functions as his own rabbi. Isn't it exactly the reverse? Yeah, and I I hear people say, well, you got all kinds of divisions in the Catholic Church. You got all kinds of people who are liberal, conservative, um, whether it comes to liturgy, whether it comes to theology, whether it comes to morality, whether it comes to the, you know, the partisan Mm -hmm. political bickering. You know, you got pastors, you know, priests that fall down on different sides of those different questions. And I would say, yeah, of course we do. But none of them 
can get up and say, hey, you know what? Uh, instead of having an 8.30 and an 11 o'clock mass on Sunday, what instead we're going to have is an 8.30 sort of town hall meeting and then like an 11 o'clock book club. And that's what we're going to be starting yeah. to do on Sundays. You, there's, they don't have the authority to do that, right? Um, at there a bare still, minimum, they're still tied to this stuff. Yeah, with all the divisions that you referred to in the year talking about, there is still one system of theology. One binding system of theology such that a book can be written called the Catechism of the Catholic Church that spells it out. Yeah, and the people th- who more to be said about from that. it are the people who you know are messing with it sometimes yeah. will even be open about the fact that they're say they that this isn't what the church teaches now but it's what i hope the church will teach one day right you know yeah. uh, there may be people who don't do all these things but it's it's not about what a catholic believes it's about what the church teaches at the end of the day the, which is a very different kind of thing the, very different kind of thing the, the the way that i've organized that in my head is, is like this matt is that the the formal principle within Catholic theology is this is an authoritative church. To the extent that Catholics adhere to that, there is unity. The, the division only occurs as people depart from that and say, well, I understand the Catholic Church's teaching is X, but I reject it now. On the other hand, the foundational principle within Protestantism is the Bible alone and the right of private judgment. And so the more that individual Christians adhere to that foundation, the more division results <laughs> because, because I take the Bible and I take it seriously and I read it and I decide for myself what is teaching and it's not the same as what you decide. And so actually the foundational principle of Catholicism when adhered to leads to unity, whereas the foundational principle of Protestantism when adhered to faithfully leads to division. It's a very different situation. Well, and it leads to a Catholic church that is full of diversity and leads to Protestant churches that are full of uniformity. Um, again, because... You mean individual Catholic congregations? Church, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. it's... it's or a denominations. It's a weird thing to think about, but, you know, if you're gathering around people who all agree mm-hmm. about basic stuff, then they're all going to kind of be alike. If you're saying, here's the deal, all you baptized people, this is your church over here, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You're going to be bringing in all kinds of people who have all kinds of different quirks and emphases and are of different socioeconomic statuses mm-hmm, are from mm-hmm. you know in the case of my parish probably like 11 different countries and what what's what's the basis of unity it's our baptism and it's the eucharist right um and it's the authoritative church that's been handed down through the apostles if any one of us stands up and say you know what here i stand i can do no other i believe you guys everybody in this room's got it wrong i'm going to start my own thing yeah well, that person can start their own thing. They're free to go do that. But what they're going to have is just a whole bunch of people who look and sound and act like them. Yeah, and what they're going to have is a Protestant church. Yeah. That's what they're going to have. Okay, listen. Next week, uh, you and I are going to go on with this to tell the story of how Luther dealt with this issue of growing disunity and fragmentation within the Protestant movement. But in closing, I just want to say this. This whole reality that we've talked about today, Sola Scriptura, the right of private judgment, what it leads to, um, this whole reality is what raised some critical questions for me while I was still a Baptist pastor. Questions like these, which I'll just ask at this point. Is it important that the church be one? Is it important that the Church of Christ be one church? If it is important... 
How can it ever be one church? How can it ever be one church when every Christian is his own pope and council, when every Christian is his own rabbi? Is it important that the church be one? And if it is important, how can it be one? How can it ever be one if everyone is his own, her own rabbi? And then another question, would Jesus have established the church like this? <laughs> I guess that's a question that I had never really thought of during all my years as a Protestant. Would our Lord have established his church without there being some method by which the true teaching true teachings of the faith could be preserved and known. Would he have given us an inspired book and then just left us to figure it out? You know, you study real hard and figure it out, Matt. I study real hard and I try to figure it out. These are questions that really began to push me and open me to being willing to say, you know, for the first time really to say, what does the Catholic Church say about these things what is the Catholic worldview? Yeah. Um, again, all this resonates with me because uh, for me, it wasn't merely studying a historical case of, you know, what did the right of private interpretation look like back then? It was a, a matter of me watching it play out in a, a number of different scenarios over the course of a number of different years from high school through college and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, it's you kind of forced to ask the question, but um, I'm also forced to ask the question, thanks to you and uh, Dr. Luther, about like a thing in my head about what it must look like for an ass to play a harp. And all I could think of was, um, was quick well, like drama. Like separate from, the strings. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Was, quick was drama, quick drama Graw a, a horse or a donkey? Do we remember this? The one who did the El Cabong thing? Because that's not a harp, but it's a guitar. It is a string instrument. I think he's a horse. Is he a horse? Okay, well I then never mind. he's a horse, this. of course, of course. Well... None of what I was about to say then applies. But All right. we are glad that you've been sticking with us through this entire episode, this entire series on uh, Martin Luther and uh, kind of the chronological trajectory of his worldview and the way that it played out, and hopefully understand a little bit more about where he was coming from when he came up with things like Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. Go back and watch some of the other series. I know there's sometimes comments on the video saying, hey, you never got to this. I'm like, well, we did. That was like seven episodes ago. Uh, so uh, check out some of the other series uh, episodes by going to chnetwork.org slash on the journey. Uh, if you're interested in conversations about this because it's stuff you're struggling with right now in your own world, especially if you're a Protestant pastor, come visit us in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. And of course, all this is brought to you because of the generous support of people supporting our work. So um, if you're one of those people who wants to be part of that and, uh, and be uh, a financial participant in the project, then definitely go to chnetwork.org slash compass. I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley. Thank you as always. We'll talk to you next All week. All right, and I'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.